is our prayer of confession, so I will read through this, and you can read with me. I will read slowly so that you can read along with me. Here's how we pray. Father, we confess our inability to ascribe to you the worship you deserve. We recognize our need for the Holy Spirit to stir our affections and filter our praise. We confess our imperfections and ask that your kindness would lead us to repentance. We acknowledge that you alone are worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our affections, and worthy of our worship. We confess that our hope is often built on lesser things instead of the sufficiency of Christ. We confess that our joy is often determined by idols and not the finished work of Jesus. To this end, we pray that you would make us worthy of your calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Band, if you'll come up, April, if you'll come up and read for us our scripture this morning. be reading Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is From the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.
could rescue me from my failing who else would offer his only son who else invites me to call him father
So when it comes to Jesus, there's a lot of um, responses with regards to who he is, his person, who he is historically. And so it's kind of a big deal that we that we dial that in and that we get that right. You know, um, there's a lot of these kind of videos where you would see people on the street asking people what they think about Jesus or who is Jesus to them. And sometimes the answers are a bit foul. <laughs> Uh, sometimes people are very angry in the way that they want to describe who Jesus is. Uh, so this is pretty common. You know, it's pretty common. If you've done any evangelism in your life, um, and you, you've probably come across people like this, who they may think highly of Jesus, they may say good things about Jesus, you know, but, but it's still reduced, he's still reduced to a common man. He's still reduced to just someone like me or you. Maybe he's a little bit nicer. Maybe he, you know, was a, a prophet or a holy man or something like that. And, and maybe even sometimes people uh, are right in what they say, but it's still, still very, very much the, the low end of what Jesus actually is. You know, and so uh, you, you, I've watched a lot of these videos, and it's always kind of astounding to, to hear these answers you know, even from people that aren't hostile or angry. So here's kind of some thoughts for today. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And um, uh going to shift gears a little bit because I want to talk about the preeminence of Christ. I think it's appropriate to kind of go this direction for just a little while, no, just today. And Austin will pick back up in the Gospel of John next Sunday. So we're not going to be in the Gospel of John. For those of you who are good students and already turning there to chapter 19, ready to roll, not going to go there. You need to keep heading east over to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. But this is fitting because, you know, we just studied chapter 19, or most of it. We looked at the scourging, the crucifixion. We looked at the necessity of all these things, the necessity of Christ's humiliation, the necessity of his suffering, the necessity of being forsaken, the necessity of prophecy, the necessity of sovereignty. We saw all five of those elements wrapped up in the gospel of, uh, of John, specifically chapter 19. And so I think it's worth our time to, to, to stand right here for just a little while and, and dive further into why Jesus deserves our attention and our focus, not just at Christmas time. Because here's my conviction, and here's my struggle at the same time. I, I do think of Jesus often. I think of Jesus daily, whether that's uh, time spent in the Word or prayer or not. I mean, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to fathom a Christian that does not have the things of God on their mind, at least at some point in every day of their lives. It's a, and maybe it's me because, I've, because I've, I've spent my whole life doing church and being in church, and to, to use the, the cultural vernacular, you know, to, to do, I've, do, I've done that. I've done the seminary, so it's been drilled in my brain, so it's not going to go away, which I'm thankful for. 
you know, that my mind is always on these things because it's a foreign thing to me to think that people can go a day without their thoughts, at least at some point or several points during the day, being on, being on God. You know, uh, whether it's if they're getting themselves into trouble or if it's just a, a, a heart of, of thanksgiving or gratitude and that connects automatically to God because realizing that all good things come from Him. You know, so or it's at work and you're you're thankful that, you, you know, you didn't injure yourself that day or when I'm putting button caps in that on this day I didn't smash my finger, which I do all the time. Uh, and uh, I always tell uh, I always tell my coworkers, I'm like, you ever heard that expression? It'll make a preacher want to cuss. You know, it's like, that's how I feel every time I smash my finger, you know, and I just ah, it hurts. Um, so, uh, you know, but but. Our days should obviously, hopefully, be filled with thinking on the things of God. But I get it. You know, we, we, we have work. We have obligations. We have responsibilities that are secular. You know, we have whether we're making tires or building tables or, or, or whatever it is that we do. HVAC, you know, whatever it is that we do, you know, guys are, 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 can be notoriously one-track-minded. So I get it. We're dialed into what we're doing. And, you know, God's here always. But Maybe our minds don't go there all the time, but it should, right? So I want us to think about the person of Jesus more today. I want us to have it written in our DNA or shoved into our DNA that Jesus is, is someone that we celebrate every day of our lives. You know, he, he, gets a, he gets an honorable mention during Christmas time and Easter. Those are the Christer times. He gets the honorable mention you know, we have services, you know, that are very Easter specific, very resurrection specific. You know, we have Christmas services that are very incarnation specific. And that's not bad, but at the same time, it drives me nuts sometimes. Because at the end of the day, the incarnation leading to the gospel, the gospel leading to our life and hope and joy we have in Christ and Christ alone, it affects our every day. It affects everything that we do. It affects our decisions. It is the gospel that provides our identity, which shapes everything we do and all of our decisions. So it, 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 it is ridiculous if any church body doesn't celebrate Jesus Every time they come together, and I, and I think that's what we do. That's the name of the game, right? That's what we're supposed to do, and not just Christmas and not just Easter. So I wanted to look at some Messianic superlatives. I wanted to do that today. So if there's a title for this message, Jake, you can go ahead and make a note. Messianic superlatives, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. But before I read that, let me set up a context for you. Let me set up this context. So in the book of Colossians, Paul is combating a heresy known as the Colossian heresy to scholars today. But specifically, there are two things that Paul addresses, and that is Gnosticism and legalism. Gnosticism coming from the root word gnosko, which means to know or knowledge. All right, so you need to understand that what Paul is combating is this heresy, and that serves as the backdrop for what Christ is saying. It's because Christ is speaking to encourage believers despite the fact that there's this rancid heresy that's moving through and sweeping through the church or sweeping through the, the, the area, I guess you would say. And he's wanting these newer believers to, to cling tightly to truth. And so he starts to share this truth with them. So Gnosticism, just to give you a definition, it basically teaches that God is good, matter is evil. Okay, God is good, matter is evil. It taught that Jesus was merely one of a series of emanations that come from God, one of many. And he's less than God, and they also teach that a secret, 
that higher knowledge above Scripture was necessary for salvation. Again, Gnosticism, Gnosticism, Gnosko. That's what the word to know or knowledge. They say there's a secret knowledge, there's a divine knowledge in which you have to have. And they're not talking about the truth of the gospel. <laughs> they're not talking about that. You know, uh, this is this is much. This is an ugly, ugly, ugly thing that's waving through there. So he's dealing with Gnosticism and he's dealing with legalism. Again, circumcision, legalism would teach that circumcision is necessary for salvation. And that uh, observation of the ceremonial rituals of the Old Testament law uh, and asceticism or self-denial were also necessary for salvation. So he's combating these things. So you start to see why Paul says what he says. And here's what I love. In the face, in the face of this heresy, in the face of this rank pagan nastiness, he says this. He says, Jesus, verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of of the invisible God. Jesus, whom we celebrate at Christmas and Easter, right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and listen to this, and for him. Children, are you listening to me? Jesus created all things. Not just are they created by him, but for him. Everything you see, everything you see is for the glory of God. And that is very important for us to understand. Everything is for the glory of God. Who do you think ultimately is responsible for school? God. God wants you to be educated. He wants you to use a brain that he gave to you. So we think, oh, he created this for me that I might learn. True in a sense, but ultimately he created it for himself that he might be glorified through all that can be accomplished through education. And that applies to every single scenario that we can come up with. And he is before all things, the scripture says in verse 17, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So you have a robust theological statement that Paul just about comes out of the gate with talking to this church in Colossae. I mean, he, it's just saturated with rich theological content. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this thing line by line, almost phrase by phrase or, or word by word until the time runs out, all right? And that's whenever I'm finished. So we're going to do that, and, and, and I want you to see all these wonderful things, but I'm going to try to move quickly. Uh, so, so I'm going to get to the end. There's going to be, some, I think, some great application, and I want to get to that, and I want to have time to do so. So let's, let's hold on tight. And let's move through this, all right? So here's my objective, to understand why Christ should be regarded as the preeminent one and to see what it would look like for us to functionally live without Je with Jesus in a position of preeminence. That's wordy. Let me, let me break that down, all right? I want us to understand and see what it would look like to truly function as Jesus having the first place in our lives. We say it all the time. 
You know, we say it. They're cliches that you've heard since you were little. You know, keep Christ first. Oh, keep Christ, keep Christ first. But the question is, what would it really look like if you actually did that? What would it look like if that's how you function with Jesus having preeminence? He has preeminence. I mean, he is the preeminent one. He is the prototokos, the firstborn, having all authority, being unique, being like no one else. He has that. That's him. Whether we acknowledge it or not doesn't change a thing. That's who he is. But the question is, rather than just acknowledging that with our mind, what would it look like if we functioned in that way? What would our lives say about Jesus if we lived as though he was first in our lives, really? And that's what I want to get into today. So... Prepare to go home and repent in sackcloth and ashes. All right. Superlative. Let me give you a, de- a definition. This is a word or exp- a word expressing the highest degree or quality. In this text, Paul answers the heretical attacks on the church in Colossae by offering a list of messianic superlatives. So he's giving this beautiful, beautiful statement about Jesus, the superiority, the beauty, the majesty, the sovereignty of Jesus. So here we go, walking through the text. Back in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. This gets very, very doctrinal very, very quickly in explaining to us the person of Christ. And again, the goal is to find out why. Why do we celebrate him more than just Christmas and Easter? Why the attention? Why the focus? Because the focus is given to him in the scripture. Because the whole scripture points to Jesus. So it's only right and true that we would follow in the same steps that these have in the scripture. Or as the Holy Spirit inspired it to be written about. Everything hinges on this as far as Christianity is concerned. I've said that about many things. I've said this about the gospel, the resurrection. Again, Christianity crumbles if if Jesus is just common. If he's, if he's simply the man that these people in the video say he is. You know, if he's just a, he's a prophet, he was a good guy, he had some good standards, some good rules, he lived a good life, he was humble, he was meek, he was, he was these things, you know, he, and he really did love people. But that's, that's so, so very incomplete with regards to who Christ is. We have to have the full scope of who Jesus is, and Paul starts to dial in on that. He's the image of the invisible God. John's gospel, again, is an apologetic for the divinity or the deity of Christ, And John's gospel labors to show us these things of Jesus. Page after page, we see this. For Jesus to be the image of the invisible God is different than us who are made in the image of God. There is a difference. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You and I are made in the image of God. And let me explain why these things are different. This word image, what is happening here, it's not as though someone has made a copy of in the sense that now we have something that just represents the original or the real thing. Because a copy of a Van Gogh or a Michelangelo or whatever is not the original. It's just a copy. You might be able to hold them up against each other and say, well, these are exactly the same, you know, but they're not. One's an original, crafted or painted by the, by the, by the uh, painter, by the artist. The other is just a copy. We have to be careful not to look at Jesus being the image of the invisible God as just a copy because he is God. 
everything about God, the Father, with the, with the exception of his title and his position of Father, is true of God, the Son. Now, God is not flesh, the Father. God, the Son, is flesh. So there's those differences, right? But as far as quality, as far as purity, as far as eternality, as far as all of these attributes, they are the same. So when it says he is the image of the invisible God, he is saying he's not, he's not a copy or a reprint, he is the exact same. He is the exact representation of his nature, as the author of Hebrews says. He's the radiance of his glory. You and I are made in the image of God, right? We are in the image. We aren't his image. We are in the image, meaning that we have certain attributes that are God, that, that, that God has shared with us. You are loving. Why? Because God is loving. You are Jealous, you can be jealous. Why? Because God is jealous. You have creativity. Why? Because God is creative. You know, all these attributes that God has, he has shared only with humanity. And I know I've talked about these things with you before, but it's worth revisiting. He shared these things with you. But there are also things that he has not shared called his incommunicable attributes. His eternality, his glory, his purity, his his knowledge, you know, his 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 infinity. You know, uh, all of these things are things that he hasn't shared with you because you had a beginning. You are created. God is not. Right. So there's a difference in being in his in his image versus being the image of the invisible God. Jesus isn't just a picture of God. He is God. And you understand how that's a very slippery slope. Because if we go around talking to people or agreeing with people that might just say, well, he's just a picture of it. You know, because it's easy to think that when you think image. But Paul is very specific here when he says he's the image of the invisible God uh, or that, yeah, that he is the image of the invisible God. He's saying he is God. This is a statement of his divinity. It's a statement of his exactness when it comes to God the Father. So. He is the image of the invisible God. We're going to roll through these very quickly. He's also the firstborn of all creation. And again, why am I going through this list? I just want you to remember that, that there is a reason that we celebrate him every day. He's more than just the baby in a manger. He's more than just, he's more than just this. He's more than just that carpenter. Josh McDowell wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter about Jesus, and it's fantastic, about, about you know 60 pages. Great read. I encourage you to grab it. Uh, he's more than a carpenter. He's more than just these things. He's not common he's more than just a prophet he's more than just a good teacher right we understand and we have to hear this all the time and you may be sitting there as I hear myself saying this and the the temptation is to say you know what I feel like I'm a I feel like I'm a broken record I say these things all the time but let me ask you do you live that way all the time and do I live that way all the time no I'm reminded of Martin Luther who would Always stand before his congregation and share the gospel over and over and over again. So finally someone came up and said, uh, you know, can we move on to something else? You always give us the gospel. And his response was, well, when you start believing the gospel, I'll, I will stop preaching the gospel. And the sentiment is that we, we have to have these things at the forefront of our mind all the time. Whether we've heard it 17 times yesterday, we can hear it 25 times today. You know, because we need the gospel to inform us. We need the reality of Jesus and who he is to inform us. That's why these things are recorded in the scriptures. These are the words of life. These things are written that you may believe and have life and have life in his name. Whose name? The name of Jesus. And that's who Paul is presenting to us. And specifically in this context, making clarification because of heresies that have, that have infiltrated. 
and that people are you know, in risk, at risk of subscribing to. So he's the image of the invisible God. He's also the firstborn of all creation. The Jehovah's Witness love to jump on this and say, aha, see, he's a created being. We know that he was born. We know that he was born of a virgin. We understand these things. We're good at, the, at celebrating the incarnation. But we can't reduce it to, okay, that just means he was, uh, you know, he was just, you know, he was just, uh, he, was, he, was, he, was, he was special. He was the firstborn. He was a created being. And, and God made him special. This is rank heresy. This is what the Jehovah's Witness insist on, but it's not true. And here's the issue. There's a couple of reasons just out of the gate why that would be a major problem and should be obvious to you. Okay, it should be obvious to you because it would be completely contradictory to the overwhelming amount of textual references to the eternality of Jesus. You know, it takes a little bit of biblical theology. It takes a little more than proof texting here, proof texting there. It takes a little more than these things. Scripture is meant to be considered across the board. This is hermeneutics, the interpretation, the study of the interpretation of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So we take the verses that show us fairly clearly that God and that Jesus are the same, that the Father and the Son are equal, okay, that they're equal, Two persons, one God. We take that and we say, okay, so all the things that apply as far as eternality applies to Jesus. We see in John chapter 1, we see that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In the beginning of what? It's a weird way to word things, but it's not the beginning of creation. Because we know that through the totality of Scripture that God, period, that God is eternal. We know that Jesus created things, and so he had to exist well before the creation of things. So how do we make sense of that? And you just start to deduce by the scriptures. Imagine you're a new Christian or a non-Christian and you're reading these things, maybe coming out of darkness, coming into the light. Things are being pieced together. The Holy Spirit's showing you, okay, this makes sense. The Bible's actually very systematic and very intentional about collecting these things so that you can see through the wide-angle lens, oh, wow, this is, this is great. Because you and I shouldn't just believe that God is, who, God is who He is because your pastor told you that. It shouldn't just be because I brought up one verse that said He's the image of the invisible God. Oh, there it is. We believe it because it's Bible, but there's so many things that come up to bring us to that point that substantiate this reality. You know, so there's so much to being a believer. There's so much to these things. When he says he is the firstborn of all creation, Paul is saying this is a positional statement. This is positional. This is not he was created. This is positional. It means that he has a unique position as the head of all things. He has a unique position as the Son of God, a position that no one else has ever or will ever share. It is unique to Jesus. That's what Paul is saying when he says he's the firstborn of all creation. The word is prototokos, means that he is unique, the uniqueness of Jesus as well as his superiority over creation. So what is Paul telling them? Paul is saying he is the image of the invisible God. He is God, statement of his deity. He's saying he is the prototokos, he's the preeminent one, he's the, uh, uh, he has a position of preeminence, he has authority, he has first place, he is my son, you follow him, he is Lord. This is what Paul is saying of Jesus here. Jesus is unique from his arrival all the way to his departure, no one would deny his uniqueness. 
you know, and it's fitting that we talk about this because here we are in his, you know, just at the time that we typically celebrate the incarnation. Nothing was normal about that, born of a virgin. All the things that transpired to bring that moment to pass are very unique, not remotely common. Men traveled across the country to worship him. That's pretty special. He performed miracles throughout his life. We're at the tail end of John, and we've seen all these wonderful things that have happened. So what you should do is take your collective understanding of the, of the gospel of John, since we've been there for almost two years, and, and, and just use that information and say, okay, yeah, he is unique. Man, I've seen the water change to wine. I've seen him drive out the money changers in the temple. We've studied about the things that he's preached, what he's taught. We see the relationship dynamic, and as it developed between he and his disciples, you know, we see his his tenderness, his mercy, but we also see the seriousness, and we see the, 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 the holiness of Jesus. All these neat things that we've discovered throughout the book of John, we can kind of bring those together to help inform us of, of his uniqueness. There's a way that Jesus taught and he cast out demons all the way to his death and resurrection. So there's no question as to whether or not Jesus is truly prototokos. He is unique. He's superior to any other man. Because he was fully man. We understand that. All of these instances I just mentioned, they speak to the works of Jesus. But that leaves much to be talked about when it comes to the person of Jesus. So it's one thing to talk about his works. It's another thing to talk about his person. And I think it's very important to make the distinction because what if you're that person or you know that person? You know, that their life is spent around, oh, I'm, I'm so thankful. I pray every day. I read my Bible every day because, because of what Jesus has done for me. Because he's good. Because he's, you know, because I see that he's performed miracles. And those are good and that is right. But let's not forget that Even if Jesus had never performed a miracle, if Jesus had never taught a thing, it doesn't change who he is, and it doesn't change his worth, and it doesn't change the fact that an eternity is the time frame that's allotted for us to acknowledge that worth, because that's his person. His works are a byproduct of who he is. And so, yes, we worship Jesus for the things that that he's done. But we absolutely worship him for who he is. Because even if he had never done a thing, he's still the son of God. Worthy of our worship. We see in Colossians 1.19 that in him dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form. He is spoken of as both a lion and a lamb. That's unique with regards to his person. He was the gentle and gracious king on earth. He stood silent as a lamb before its shearers, which we talked about last week from Isaiah 53. The revelation depicts him as the one sitting on a horse. And he is called faithful and true. His eyes are like flames of fire. He cl- he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. I mean, the imagery here is haunting. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is speaking of the person of Christ. Authority. Holy. He is from eternity to eternity. Completely sinless. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He is called the beginning and the end, or Alpha and Omega. First Corinthians, he is the rock. 
In Revelation, he is the king of kings. In Acts, he is the great judge. Jesus is the dominating theme of the entire Bible. And that's regards to his person. Who he is, is unique. He is prototokos. He is unique. He is the firstborn. But not just the firstborn of all creation. He's also the creator of all things. It says in the text as we move forward, he's the firstborn of all creation for by him, verse 16, all things were created. All things were created. I won't go into it again today, but if you remember from last week, we talked about Jesus' portfolio as a carpenter on earth making tables, chairs, or whatever, but he's actually, with a word, made the cosmos. I always think that's pretty, pretty fascinating. So this is Jesus. He's the creator of all things. It says in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whether it's a governing superpower like Rome or the United States government here, he has authority over those things. He has authority over those things. And here's again how we functionally live with Jesus having preeminence. Where we put him in his right place, and that's not to be undone because of political unrest. Not to be undone because the president of your choice did, does not become president. You know, if, if we are so shaken and stirred as to become despondent or lose hope by these things, what does it say of our belief? What does it say of the preeminence of Christ when it should be Christians that are, that, are, that are raising that flag higher than anybody else? And, and, and yeah, uh, we hope that a lost world sees that, but you better believe that you need to hoist that flag so that other Christians can see it because we always fail to live as though Christ has preeminence, as though he has first place, as though he's prototokos, as though he's unique and separate. So we have to raise that flag and say, listen, Jesus is the creator of all things. Therefore, he holds all things together. All things were made, not just through him. But remember, kids, I said not just through him, but for him, right? Listen to this. Here's some neat stuff. If Jesus created all that we know for himself, imagine all that has been made that we don't even know about. Here's some cool things that we know that God has saw fit to let us know so that we could celebrate Jesus. Joey, you're going to like this. Yeah, so uh, you've heard this before. So we know this. We know that there are estimated to be around 100 billion galaxies. That should blow your brain, right? That should just blow your mind right there. The Hubble reveals the, there, that there are these different types of galaxies like spiral, barred spiral, elliptical, irregular, so on and so forth. A teaspoon, listen to this, a teaspoon of a neutron star would weigh 6 billion tons. All right, a teaspoon of a neutron star. Six billion tons because of the mass, because of the density of that. And, and scientists feel very, pretty, pretty certain that they know that, you know, with all the math and science stuff they do, right? So that's really cool to me. That's something so small to be held in a teaspoon, you know, because I cooked and I used a measuring thing last night, so I know what a teaspoon is. I'm like, that's, that's, how can that weigh so many billions of tons? It takes eight minutes and 19 seconds for light to travel from the sun to the earth. You know, I don't know the math. That I can't do all that stuff, but there, there are people that can, and they produce these facts, and it, it's really neat that we can know these things. We can know that light travels at a certain, at a certain speed. We, we don't just know that there's light and that God spoke that into existence, but we know the speed at which it travels. We can know these things. Imagine what we don't know. Imagine what we might know tomorrow, or we might know a year from now, or three decades from now, or in heaven. 
Imagine what we might know, but imagine all the things we might not ever know. And you say, well, why are they there? They're not there for you. They're there for him. Fun fact, stomach acid is strong enough to dissolve stainless steel. Just saying. Fun fact to know. (laughs) I don't recommend you try it. But if you did, and you didn't choke on it, you might be okay. We know that when a star gets sucked into a black hole, it burps out a huge jet of plasma spanning hundreds of light years. These are fascinating, fascinating things. And this is what we do know, but it doesn't even come close to what we don't know. What we don't know, Joey and I were talking the other night, and I I learned something, which doesn't happen often when I'm in conversation with Joey. But on this particular evening, he shared with me about a satellite that was that was so far away past, you know, past all of the planets. I mean, it's just way out there. You know, the signals that are being sent back don't get back to us for who knows how long, you know. But just that God would ordain that we would have enough technological advancements to have that is, is, is so fascinating. And where scientists, atheists, and all these others who are sitting together collecting these things, you know, like they're doing the world this great big favor. I get that. You know, Christians should, 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 uh, should, should sit back and say, you know what? You know, God did this, and let us know this. If it's true, let us know this for his glory. You know, so, so that's the way we should approach education. That's the way we should approach knowledge and learning things, is that God has given us these things for his glory, for him. So he didn't just create all things, but he holds all these things together. I think this shows us the, 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 the fact that he holds all things together with regards to Jesus. It shows us that he's eternal, and it shows us that he's the sovereign Son of God. In him, all things are held together. This speaks of the sovereign power of Jesus. So, so a year ago, I, I, I talked through this at New Covenant. So some of you may remember, you might not, but I wanted to bring this in today. This is very important. So I want to show you, uh, I want to show you this image of uh, of air air traffic control. This is what it would look like. Um, as far as all the planes that might be in the air at any given point in time across the U.S. And so the air traffic control people sit behind these screens and they direct all these planes so that these planes don't run into each other. Now, you and I see this and we think chaos, disorder, (laughs) you know, and uh, it would probably make you and I very nervous to sit in front of a screen and manage this mess. But the reality is that this is incredibly safe as a form of transportation that very, very rarely do any of these planes collide. Very rarely. It's astronomically low, the chance that these planes would collide. Why? Because there's someone that's taking control over all the chaos. And I can't help but relate that to what we see in the fact that Jesus is in control of all things. You know, in, in, in the year 2020 should be a capstone year for us to say, okay, now, now it's time to put our money where our mouth is and see if we really trust in this whole sovereignty business because things are out of control. You know, you pick your topic with regards to whatever's happened or transpired in 2020. You want to talk about presidents? You want to talk about riots and mobs? You want to talk about Antifa? You want to talk about, you know, social justice? You want to talk about, you know, pandemics and diseases and all that? Take your pick. Either one of them can can stir us. Either one of us can throw us in a tizzy. But again, Christians should be the one that have the highest flag raised in the air pointing to the preeminence of Jesus, pointing to what Paul's trying to make as a point here that, guess what? Here's truth, 
And this is what will anchor you and make the difference. So we look at the world like this, and it's chaotic, and we have zero control, but we know the one that does have control. So he doesn't just create things, but he holds all things together. But it also says that he is the head of the church. Listen to verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and again for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. Before things, again, is a statement of his eternality. It's the fact that he is forever. He's eternal. And in him all things are held together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the body of the church. Pastors, we refer to ourselves as under-shepherds. We have a shepherding role, but as under-shepherds is the way that I've heard it all my life. And for good reason, because Jesus is the head of his church. At the end of the day, it's Jesus who is the head, Jesus who shepherds, not the pastors in that sense. Now, Jesus has allowed for pastors to have a certain ruling capacity, a certain ruling authority to use Bible language. You know, those who rule well are worthy of this or that, right? So it says that, they are put in place to help to shepherd, by the grace of God, the bride of Christ. But Jesus is at the helm. Jesus is the true head of the church. So this works well if your pastors or if pastors are in full subjection to Christ. Just like your marriages would work better if husbands were in full subjection to Jesus. I mean, that's the design. And it's interesting, the, the, the connection between a husband leading his bride and Christ as the husband leading his bride. There's an interesting connection there. And, of course, it's not happenstance. The church is for all whom Christ died, spanning all time. And the Scriptures make it very clear that God has love for Christ's bride. God has love for his children. And God the Father appointed Christ to be the head of the church. He appointed Christ to lead and take care of the church. He gave to Christ a bride, and Christ is the head of that church. And it says that he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. Now, this is interesting where it says from the dead. We're bringing it in, folks. Hang on. Firstborn from the dead. This is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. If there were four words that you would not want removed from the Scripture, it is these. He is not here. If Jesus would have been in the tomb, we would have all been in a world of hurt. And when Paul says this, that he's the firstborn from the dead, he's speaking of the resurrection of Jesus, which again, Christianity hinges on. But we have these words, he is not here. If Mary would have found his body in the tomb that day, everything would have been in vain. I mean, all the promises, all those prophecies, <laughs> we would have had an issue. The 28 prophecies that I talked to you about last week that all were uh, dealing with the, the, the last day of Christ's life, all for nothing if there was no resurrection. We would have had a major, major problem because you can't, you can't have the death of Jesus and it just stay a death of Jesus. You have to have the resurrection. You have to have the full scale of the gospel that comes into view. 
If Jesus was still in the tomb, it would mean that there is no escaping the condemnation of our sin or God's holy indignation that burns against us, waiting to be released for an eternity of justice. This is why a, a celebration of resurrection on Easter and only Easter simply will not do. That's why a celebration of the incarnation of Jesus leading to the gospel of Jesus on Christmas will not do. It has to be a daily celebration. I'm not saying leave Christmas decorations up all year round, although I wouldn't be offended by that. I'm not saying do that, but I'm saying what we absolutely have to do is celebrate Jesus every day of our lives. And clearly not just in church, not just standing on this platform or sitting in those seats, or not just when we sing, but in everything that we do. And this has to be in front of us every day. We have to consider these things as it practically works out in all that we do. We believe in the resurrection because God's word tells us that it's true, and God's word is self-attesting. We believe in the resurrection because, what, what, because of the numerous eyewitness accounts of him after he died. We believe in the resurrection because what kind of fool would die for a man that made the claims Jesus did but couldn't conquer the grave? The disciples all died for the sake of the gospel. Something tells me that they really did see a risen Christ because why in the world? Why in the world would they die for a man who promised them so many things and then didn't come through with the most important one? I believe he did. And I believe that's what calls these men. A man who would deny Jesus? A man who when the uh, men who when the, when, the, when the shepherd was struck, the sheep scattered? All go to the cross. I mean, all go to their death because of Jesus. Willingly. And so have many others since that time. Without the resurrection, the good news of the gospel is just news. And Paul says he's the preeminent one. He is the most high. He has the first place. But Jesus is not the first on a list of many. He's in a category all of his own. He's not common. He's not, I mean, not common, but he is unique. He's not marginal, but he's central to all things. He's not secondary, trite, weak, or of no great concern. He's not an accessory, but rather he is a necessity. He's not an addition to your life as though you fit him into your schedule, but he becomes center of which our lives revolve around. He is preeminent in all things. So the question is, what would it look like if we functioned with Christ as the preeminent one of our lives? What if, what if our everyday was marked by the reality that Jesus is the, in, the image of the invisible God. That Jesus is the prototokos. That he is the unique one. That he has preeminence over all things. What if that reality truly shaped the way that we live, move, and have our being? What would we look like? And this is, this is every bit for me. And if it applies to you, then you wear it. Because it always comes down on me. When I fail as a dad, when I fail as a husband, when I fail in, in decisions that I make, always it comes down on me. What would this have looked like if Christ was preeminent in your life? And I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit's conviction in my life for those things. So here we have by application two realities. First, Christ is first whether we offer the recognition or not. I had a conversation with two Mormons some time ago where I sat with them at one of their worship facilities. I won't call it a church because it's not, but one of their worship facilities. And I brought to their attention Philippians, the book of Philippians where Paul talks about 
you know, uh, where he talks about these things, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and earth and under the earth. And they said, oh, well, that just means that one day everybody will be with Jesus. They'll all bow and worship. So they become universalists. And so I said, no, no, <laughs> no, no. There will come a time where everybody does bow before. But there's bowing that the Christian will do and saying, you are who you say you are. I worship you. You are gracious. You are good. And then there's bowing because you will be subjected. You will be put to your knees in your own guilt and your shame. And it will be too late. They didn't like that answer. But that's what I gave them. We have a choice as to whether or not we esteem Christ as preeminent. Unfortunately, the sentiment of Christ's preeminence has been reduced to catchphrases and cliches. Keep Christ in Christmas. Keep Christ first. Keep Christ in your relationship. Keep Christ first in your marriage, which are absolutely true. But we say them so much without proper application or appropriation that they're just words sometimes. And they sound good. You know, if you come to me for counseling, I promise you I will not say keep Christ first and send you on your way. It's just not that simple. It's true, but it has meaning. And if you did keep Christ first, then everything changes. You might see some persecution face to face. But things will change, and you will never have regret. This is a radical concept. It's a very radical concept. We pray for missionaries, you know. Um, if we pray for our missionaries, and in some cases, you know, at, at New Covenant, by the way, uh, over a year ago, we heard missionaries come there, and in their worship services, they had ISIS come, you know, uh, not to worship Jesus, but to bring threats with them. You know, and I heard that, and I'm like, that's radical. That's radical. That might just mean that Christ is truly, for them, functioning as a preeminent one in their lives. Because if ISIS is trying to kill you, you must be doing something decent. <laughs> In many cases, I would say. So here's some, uh, some statements that I'll close with by way of application with regards to Christ's preeminence, to Christ having the first place in your life. And, and, and children and students, this applies to you just as much as it does to any adult. If you profess Jesus as Lord, this applies to you very much. So Christ having preeminence means this. It means the killing or the mortification of our sin. It means the denial of self of our most natural inclination towards sin because Christ has set us free. For those of you that are married, which are most in this room, it means that your marriage will become a platform for the gospel. And there are many ways that it can do that. Also, and I have been talking, we're going to go into a series on marriage when we're done with, with John, a several-week series on, on, on John, talking about a lot of different things specific to uh, marriage, the roles in marriage, conduct in marriage, all of these things. We think it's good. We think it'll be timely for everybody. And we, 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 we haven't done that before, so we want to go into a, a series on marriage. So hold on to your hats for that. Having Christ as preeminent means that your job, love it or hate it, is a platform for the gospel as well. In our jobs, we often, we're often thrusted into the front lines of warfare. I hope that you see it that way. It's an opportunity to be right in the mix. Is your job a drudgery or is it more of a mission for you? Is it a means to an end or is it mission? Is it opportunity? See, that's the way to kind of work against this whole, I get tired of my job, this 9 to 5, it's too much of a routine, it's old to me, I wish there was something else. Hey, start using that platform as an opportunity for 
evangelism and mission, you know, and start to do that, you know, and then the job becomes the accessory to the mission rather than the mission being an accessory to the job. Having Christ as preeminent means that your suffering becomes the opportunity to draw attention to Christ and his goodness. One pastor going through cancer said this, I wouldn't trade my cancer for the world because it was, because it was in it that I truly tasted of the sweetness of Christ. In our parenting, we can show the preeminence of Christ. You will know that if Christ is a preeminent one in your parenthood, if God calls your kids to serve where Christians are being murdered every day, and you say, okay, God be with them. I've talked to a lot of parents whose kids were called to the mission field and not just to Hawaii where they can be on a beach and witness to people, but places in the Mideast, places where it's hostile Muslim territory. And the parents are like, no, 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 you can't go there. And the parents step in. And I can't help but think it's much like Peter when he stood in the way of the cross. When Peter said, no, 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 Lord, you, you're, we're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. We're not going to let that happen. And he says, get behind me, Satan. See, sometimes parents do that as they work against the cross rather than for it. They work against the gospel rather than for it. But if Christ has preeminence, you can't help but say, God, they're yours. All things were created by you and for you. But sometimes we forget that those kids are created by God. My kids are yours. And this applies to you parents who have kids that are hard to control, hard to handle, behavioral issues or whatever. You have to trust that they're for God as well. And that if he's, if he's, if he's the creator, he's sovereign over all the things that he created as well. And that means your children. If we have Christ as a preeminent one, that means that we place a premium on his church, a premium on the body of Christ. We're in a weird, a weird season with COVID, and I'm, I'm, in my mind, I still struggle with navigating what, what, what the rules are when it, in terms of being here or not being here, just to be honest. It's a struggle for me. Christ died for the church. The New Testament ecclesiological paradigm is that we gather, we edify, we serve, and we worship. At the end of the day, if we don't know anything else, we know that. That, sh that, should be, uh, that should be the foundation. All decisions, as far as I'm concerned, should be made with that as the premise, with that as the foundation, with that as the launch pad. How, whatever you want to use there to explain that, that, that concept is we have to say we're called to gather, we're called to do these things. The church was given, the church was purposed and purchased so that we gather and we stir one another up to love and devotion, to affection for one another, mostly to Christ. This is why we do that. If we don't gather, how can we do that? Then it begs the question, if we don't gather, are we functioning rightly or properly as a church? And then are we fulfilling our purpose if we're neglecting things? I don't, I don't know how to answer all that in this weird season. But if anybody's in question, the, where you need to start is that we are, we are redeemed and a part of the expectation is that we gather. You show me someone who loves the church, and I will show you someone who loves Jesus. I've met so many people. I love Jesus, but I'm not religious. <laughs> you know, I don't laugh in their face, but that's what I want to do. Like, what, what does that mean? You know, and I, I get the sentiment, or I love Jesus, but, but uh, I, I, I just don't do church. There's a horrible disconnect there. You understand that. You've probably talked to people like that, and maybe you've accepted that response from them. When the answer is absolutely not. You cannot, cannot love Jesus and not love his church. You can be burned at church and have had a bad experience. 
fine. That's good. But you cannot not have a love for the bride of Christ and have a love for Christ's, for, 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 for the groom. It just, you can't. Our preferential, consumeristic, and egotistical approach to the gathered church is an affront to Christ. And I believe it bears false witness to the world regarding our desperate need for the body of Christ. If we accessorize the church, we are most likely to accessorize Jesus. So for Christ to have the preeminence, it means that he becomes necessity rather than an accessory in our lives. Christ having the preeminence in our lives ultimately means that the gospel becomes the mantra of us all. And I'll leave you with this thought. This would mean that we see through gospel lenses. This would mean that we speak the language of the gospel or with gospel fluency and it would mean that we live with gospel intentionality. We see things through the identity that we've been given. We don't look at a world and say, oh, things are horrible. I hope they get fixed. I hope this. I hope that. And don't be surprised by how nasty things can be. But you have the vision and the, and the, and the uh, vantage point that says, okay, the gospel... I'm rescued from this. Now I have eyes to see that there is legitimate darkness, that there is brokenness. And that's the answer to why you're acting the way you act. That's the answer to why babies are murdered. That's the answer to these things. That's the answer to why you can, you, you know, you, you can be a, a nice person and still be lost you know, and spend an eternity separated from God because the gospel provides that because you're no longer darkened in your understanding, but you're brought to enlightenment. And I've told you before, there is a burden that comes with enlightenment, and that is that you have a front row seat to all the horrors of the world, and you know where they come from, but you also know the hope. And that's the silver lining, is that though we plant and water, we plant and water, we plant and water, at the end of the day, the Lord brings the increase. And that should bring us great joy. Because he didn't just create all things, but he also holds all things together. Us, our children, the earth tilted on its axis, its rotation, its proximity to all the other planets, our galaxy and proximity to all other galaxies and everything else that we know and don't know. It's all held together by the preeminent one, the creator. And that's why we celebrate Jesus. Because he's more than just a baby in a manger. He's more than just a man on a cross. He's more than just these answers given by people in the streets of New York and others. He is the centerpiece of redemptive history. He is the host of heaven and the center and the reason there's no need for a son because the glory that he has provides light for all. And that's why we celebrate Jesus. So let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, my prayer today is simple, and that's that our affections would be stirred for you, Jesus. And Father, we thank you for giving us Jesus. We thank you for the plan and for the intention to glorify yourself, to glorify the Trinity through the giving of Jesus, that he might be a sacrifice that he might be a substitute 
so that we didn't have to face the horrors of your wrath. And I pray that those realities and the reality of who Jesus is would be ever present on our minds, at work, at home, at parenting, dates with our spouses, whatever. You know, that, 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 that our thoughts and our actions would be driven by the, by the root reality that you are all of these things that the Scripture represents and so much more than we could ever understand. Lord, you've given us cause, you've given us reason for celebration, so I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would celebrate you with every day of our lives. May our children see the joy that we have. May our children see the celebratory nature of having Jesus as Lord. May they see that we too count all things lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus as Lord. May we value you to that degree. Jesus, would you use us to make much of yourself as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.